You are so lovely. Honestly, you're just so hospitable and generous and trusting, and you seem to think this is going to be okay. (laughs) And I don't know whether I ought to be making disclaimers or um, apologies or excuses before I start, but I've been house-moving today. I have no hot water. I don't know what I look like. I don't know what I'm really... It's all going to be the Lord. (laughs) It's either him or we're, we're sunk. However, it is, I have given it more thought than that, you need to know, over the little, last little while, and uh, it is lovely to be with you. I have a huge, well, I have a, a large heart, anyhow, but I have a very large heart for new wine and for all who sail in her, and uh, have close, dear friends right across the whole movement, right across all the churches, north, south, east, and west, and uh, I count it one of the well, John and I count it one of the joys of our lives to be associated with John and Ann Coles and with all of you and with New Wine in general. And this is one big love fest as far as I'm concerned. So it's great to be with you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, warriors and worshippers all. I feel that we are a room full of warriors and I think that we want to go out and change the world. I think we want to take this land for Jesus but we start by worshipping him who sits upon the throne. And I love it that you've spent all day thinking about it, doing it, rejoicing in it. And as the day draws to its close, I want to talk about who it is that we worship. And I want to talk about the throne, the lion, and the lamb. No witch, no wardrobe. But from the book of Revelation, we're going to look at the objects of our worship. Him who sits upon the throne and upon the Lion of Judah and upon the Lamb that was slain. So, if you have a Bible, you might want to reach for it. If you have an iPad or... Did you see Becky with that iPad? I mean, that's so cool. I was so... I don't know what she talked about. I can't tell you what the notice was about. All I could see was the varnish on her nails and that nifty little iPad with one hand. So, it's again something I'm going to go home and start practicing. (laughs) However... Get out your iPad or your phone, on your honor, turn to the Bible, and we're going to look at Revelation chapters 4 and 5, and I hope it's going magically to be thrown onto the screens. Oh, praise God, because I can hardly read my own writing here. Very, very good. Just before we start. Revelation, as you probably well know, because you all come from New Wine, and you know your Bibles backwards, Revelation was given to St. John the Divine, as he's called, while he was in exile or in a gulag, if you like, on the island of Patmos. It was written to the early church who found themselves in an impossible position. They were being persecuted and hounded for their faith. A recent Roman emperor had come to the throne and his name was Domitian. And he was a total megalomaniac. Think of all the megalomaniacs you have read about in history, multiply them all together, and Domitian is your man. And basically, he had just said that he was not only the emperor, but that he was divine, and therefore he was to be worshipped, which of course put the Christians into a terrific bind. So as a result, the church was under huge pressure And people were losing everything. They were losing their jobs. They were losing their property. They were losing, in many cases, their freedom. And in even more cases, they were losing their lives. 
Now, in some ways, we have a parallel in that we're not the most popular people on the block if we're Christians. That's the truth, and it always will be. We live in an increasingly secularized society. However, we're not quite up against it as they were. So, how is it that God chose to strengthen his precious early church? He gave his servant a vision. He allowed John, as it were, to take a little glimpse through the very keyhole of heaven, and he showed him what he needed to see and of what the church needed to be reminded when she was the most up against it. And if you and I are wanting to go out onto the streets of London and to make any difference to anything, we need to capture a vision of who it is we worship in order to be his warriors and go out and change his land. So let's read together. Now, it looks as if it's rather a lot, but actually we'll belt through it, and it is amazing. And I'm going to read it from here. This is John, and he said, After this I looked, and there before me there was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, said John, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and they had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne there came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder, and in front of the throne seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. I haven't a clue what that means, okay? Don't look to me for all of the interpretation. Just, I just don't want you to put your, you know, your hopes too high. Also, in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Doesn't matter for now. Each of the four living creatures had six wings, was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings, day and night. They never stop saying, and this is the point, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne, and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created, and they have their being. And then moving on, just a few verses into chapter 5, if you've got it. Then one of the elders said to me, in verse 5, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain. Standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, and the Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which again are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Amazing. He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. 
And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and every language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power for ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And why would they not? It is amazing brothers and sisters. It is phenomenal. This is, this is it. This is who we worship. This puts everything into perspective. This changes everything. This redirects our focus. This redirects the very ways that we live our lives. Because this is the bottom line. This is the truth. And whether or not you spotted it, I just love this stuff in Revelation. So whenever anybody says, do you want to come and talk about worship? Yep. What do you want to talk about? Revelation? Where else would you go? Wonderful. Wonderful stuff. So John sees a vision and is shown a glimpse of heaven. And it was a vision in order to encourage and build up the church in that time which was going through the mill. The vision remains the same. And it is given in order to encourage and build up the church in this country in this time for this age. This is what we need to remember. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And it's a vision for us here in London. It's a vision for Leeds. It's a vision for Cheltenham. It's a vision for Prague. It's a vision for Dublin. It's a vision for Cape Town. It's a vision for anywhere you like to name on the face of the earth. It's the same vision. And the vision is of God upon the throne and it's a vision of him being worshipped. It's all about worship. That's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. And God is on the throne, and he is being worshipped. And in these five verses alone, in chapter 4, the throne is mentioned seven times. Seven times, over and over and over. About the jewels that surround the throne. About surrounding the throne with the elders and the thrones. From the throne came the lightning and the thunder. Over and over and over. It's a scene of utter, indescribable, awesome majesty. And John sees, as it were, through the peephole into heaven, and he sees the throne, and it is the command center, the nerve center, the cosmic headquarters of the universe. 
That's what he sees. And that's why we worship. According to Gene Peterson, the man that wrote the message, that wonderful um, paraphrase of the Bible, he says, the throne of God is the central revelation of the Bible. It's interesting. Because what it tells me is that God is seated on the throne in total, utter, immovable control. And therefore, that puts my life in a very, very safe place if I worship at the steps of his throne. The throne is the king's throne. It's the throne of government. It's the throne of authority. The king of kings, the lord of lords, and he's seated on a throne. And all the jewels and that stuff, I mean, we don't have to, it's, it's amazing. And I don't know, I'm sure there's heaps of symbolic meaning, which I don't fully understand. But in that day, jewels on a king's person or on his robes were simply a mark of majesty, wealth, amazingness, of splendor and of beauty. Our God is splendid. Our God is beautiful. One of the most beautiful worship songs, certainly the vineyard ever, ever was given, was Isn't He Beautiful? It's all we ever used to sing in the early days. Isn't He Beautiful? Where else would you begin? Isn't He amazing? He's so beautiful. He's so wonderful. He's so lovely. And that's why these jewels tell us how amazing He is. And he's a presence at the middle of the throne, and he radiates intense, sparkling light, dazzling. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote to Timothy, he said, The Lord dwells in dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has ever seen or can see. It's unapproachable. It's almost too much. But in John's vision, this is what he sees. Flashings of lightning come from the throne. And then the volume gets racketed up. And thunder joins it. And then there's even more light because before the throne, the lamps were not just flickering, blazing. And then, of course, because of the sea of crystal, it's all doubled. You see? It's amazing. It's a wonderful thing. The whole floor is a mirror. And John is caught up in this scene of utter majesty. And there are two things that we are to understand from that. And the first is that God is the starting point. He's a starting point for everything. With all the pressures that those Christians were living under, having been challenged to worship that dreadful, dreadful emperor, and all the pressure that the church was under, what does God do? He doesn't start with a thoroughgoing analysis of Roman power. He doesn't give them tips on how to handle persecution. John starts with the worship of God. That's the starting point. Worship is the starting point for us all. It's not just the benediction at the end of the day. It's where we start. It's where we set off from the minute we open our eyes in the morning. And Revelation 4 and 5 says if we're going to cope with the challenges, if we're going to cope with issues, if we're going to cope with reversals, if we're going to cope with anguish and pain and difficulty, which we are, the starting point is how we think about God. And we need to think about him centered and seated on a throne. God is the starting point, and the second thing about it is that God is the center point. He is the absolute center of everything. And what a profound revelation it was that here in the very center of the absolute cosmic headquarters of the universe is a throne. It's a profound revelation, and it gives us every reason to worship. I sometimes think, um, I've always loved to worship. I've always loved it. I was brought up as Presbyterian. And um, as a little girl, we used to go to church every Sunday of life. 
and I loved it. Sunday was my favorite day, always has been. And we would sing metrical psalms, and we would sing those beautiful psalms to Scottish metrical tunes. I can sing them to this day, and they were achingly beautiful, melodious and lovely. And as a little girl, I would sing these psalms until my heart would break and I would just cry. And my poor parents thought I was absolutely off my rocker, even as a child. <laughs> Praise God, they don't even see what I'm doing now. However, I mean, they, they did. They, they increasingly decided that I was off my rocker. But it started singing this beautiful, beautiful metrical psalms. And then I went to university, I joined a choir, and I started singing Tellis and Monteverdi and some of these glorious things. And then we used to go around cathedrals singing. And again, I thought my heart would break. It was so beautiful. It was so gorgeous. And then I came into the vineyard. I mean, talk about the lunatic fringe. Just amazing. I loved it. Because the first thing that captured my heart was just singing. Singing these achingly sweet, simple songs. I sing a simple song to Jesus. A simple song of love. That's all we knew how to do. And certainly if you know anything about the history of the vineyard, and I don't know why you should or indeed why you would care. But basically, it's very significant. Because it's part of our shared genetic code, if you like. And it all started off just by singing a group of beaten up, pharisaical believers who were burnt out on Bible studies and sick of praying. And they got together and they cried out to God. They said, God, there's got to be more than this. And one of them picked up a guitar and started to sing. And they began to sing simple one-line songs. Create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within me. And the thing started to build and the people started to get healed and the Lord started to answer their prayers and the intimacy began to return and, the, and the, just the heart-rendingness of pure, unadulterated, wonderful, achingly lovely worship. And I sometimes think, where else would you go? What, what lovelier corporate activity, this side of heaven, do you know than being with your brothers and sisters and worshiping your God? I know nothing I love more. I love it. I love it. But it starts at the steps of the throne, metaphorically on my face, on my face at the steps of the throne, worshiping him who was and who is and who is to come. He is the starting point. He is the center point. He's the key to all of it. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And you see, what this tells us, this revelation, is that we live in a God-centered universe. Don't let anybody tell you that it's not. You only have the next breath that you breathe because he gives it to you. Honestly. I mean, he, at a, metaphorically, at a flick of his fingers, this whole thing could stop. It's out of his grace that we carry on breathing from morning till night. He is in complete control. He knows just what he's doing. He has not lost the plot. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And we need to be reminded that whatever we think, whatever we see, however we feel, we continue to live in a God-centered universe. It all revolves around him. And we need to get that deep, deep into our thinking because our society tells us that we live in a man-centered universe and we need a revolution as mighty as the Copernican revolution when Copernicus, of course, discovered that the sun does not revolve around the earth. It doesn't all revolve around us, but we revolve around the sun and it's the same with the Lord. And you know, there's nothing more unattractive than someone who honestly believes that the world revolves around themselves, don't you think? How boring. I mean, they are such dull people. And this is an aside, all right? This is free. 
if any of you out there are parents, you all look far too young and beautiful to be parents, frankly, but if any of you are, if you love your children, do them a favor and never, ever let them think that they are the center of the universe, okay? I've known one or two children in the past whose parents have led them to believe that they are. And frankly, between you and me, they are poisonous. Poisonous. My children are to me the most precious thing that this earth affords. I mean, they're just amazing. I love them desperately. And they know that for me, they are hugely, hugely important. But one of the biggest gifts I ever tried to give them was to persuade them that they were not the center of the universe, that their God was and remains so, and that we revolve around him. He does not revolve around us. Do you like that? Is that a good point? It's quite a good point, isn't it, actually, considering it wasn't even, <laughs> even written down. <laughs> there you go. <sighs> so that's what I think anyway. Very strong on it. Very, very strong on it. The Presbyterians, amongst whom I grew up, the Presbyterian Westminster Confession of the 17th century, 1646, actually, if you're writing notes, said this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We're meant to enjoy this. Worship is meant to be a joy. Worship is meant to be lovely. Worship is meant to reduce us to tears. Worship is meant to have us on our dancing on our feet. Worship is meant to have me on my face before the throne. It's a very emotional thing. It's a very physical thing. It's a very wonderful thing to be able to worship and for him to be the center of it all. And so the throne stands at the center of the universe. And what it's actually saying is, it's just reminding us once and for all, God is on the throne. Okay? Sorted? Got that? God is on the throne. It's called the doctrine of sovereignty. And it's probably way up top of my favorite doctrines. I have several favorite doctrines. They rotate. <laughs> They're all amazing before you think I'm a heretic. I like judgment. That's one of my favorites. I'm very, very high on judgment because when people do me wrong, I think one day you'll... you'll... <laughs> I do. I do. I get cut up in traffic by somebody really rude and just because I'm driving, just because I'm a girl, cuts in on me. And I think one day you'll know. One day. <laughs> one day I'll be there and you may not. Unless you change your ways. Do you know that wonderful quote of Queen Anne of Austria? Of course you don't. Queen Anne of Austria, who was the Queen of France during the time of Cardinal Richelieu. And if you've watched that ghastly program, The Musketeers, you've watched that? Rubbish. However, if you... <laughs> don't quote me, but I do think it's dreadful. However, in those days, Cardinal Richelieu, who was a baddie, set himself against Queen Anne of Austria, who was pathetic anyway. And she said to him wonderfully, she said, My Lord Cardinal... The Lord does not pay at the end of every day, but at the end of the day, he pays. And I love that. This again is an aside. You're getting really good value here. Judgment is a very great comfort, but so is sovereignty. Sovereignty is wonderful. Charles Spurgeon, who of course was the most amazing um, Baptist preacher in London in the 19th century, he, he wrote this, we are not waifs and strays upon the open sea of fate. But we are steered by God's infinite wisdom towards our desired destination. Providence, which is sovereignty, is a soft pillow for anxious heads. One of my favorite overall quotes. Sovereignty is a soft pillow for anxious heads. So if ever your head is remotely tempted to turn anxious on you, just remember him who is upon the throne. 
Marvellous. So the next bit isn't quite so long, all right? I have no idea what the time is. I don't know. Clocks do something tonight. Does anything matter? Are we okay? I don't care, really. I'm, I'm, I'm on a roll, and I'm going to finish this if it kills me, okay? The throne, the lion, and the lamb. Revelation 5 and verse 5. One of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll. So here we have the lion. And in this context, you need to remember first century Christian church, the lion was the ultimate um, carrier of or illustration of raw, unassailable, awesome, irresistible, overwhelming, inescapable, unstoppable power. That's what the lion was. The lion speaks, I mean, nuclear missile. It's, that's what we would say, but that's then what the lion meant. Unassailable, unstoppable power. And then, of course, it calls Jesus the lion of the tribe of Judah. And if you were an Old Testament Jew, if you knew your Old Testament as a Jew would, you would know that the Jewish Messiah was predicted to come as a conqueror out of the tribe of Judah. You would also know that the Messiah was also to come from Judah, but descended from the line of David. And here is John telling us that the Lion of Judah and the Root of David speak of Jesus and the triumph of his kingdom. And you need to circle, as it were, metaphorically in your Bible, the word triumphed. He's triumphed. He's triumphed. Triumph. 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 The word in the Greek is Nike. Where have you seen that before? Somebody in Nike got a very big bonus on the back of that discovery because it speaks of total victory and triumph. And it means that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. And because Christ has triumphed, his people have triumphed. You and I are triumphers. We are triumphant. We have won in that sense. So in Revelation 5 and verse 10 that we read, it said, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth, which is a mystery, and it's difficult to imagine, but that's what it says. We have triumphed. We will triumph because we are in Christ we're not just alongside him. We're just not under his feet. We're just not this, that, and the other. We are in him, and he is in us. We're like little milkshakes. Have you ever stopped to think with a milkshake, is the chocolate in the milk, or is the milk in the chocolate? <laughs> Huge philosophical challenge. Am I in Christ? Is Christ in me? Do you see what I'm saying? I don't wish to, you know, um, I'm not being irreverent. What I'm saying is it is amazing how close we are in Christ. If he's triumphed, we've triumphed, and that's the truth of it, and it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And what it means is that you and I as believers today, in the middle of March 2014, we need never be defeated by anything. We need never be determined by anything. We need never be defined by anything. Anything other than our relationship with Jesus. So, this evening, and as I was praying earlier this evening, there could be people here who say, terrible things happened to me as a child, you'll never understand. I'm sure there were. 
doesn't have to determine you. People might say, you've no idea what my parents did to me. Okay, so um, um, uh, that must be awful. But that doesn't need to define you. Somebody will say, well, I'm sick, or I'm this, or I'm that. That may be true, and we don't want to underestimate it, and pastorally, we will do everything we can. We will pray for you morning, noon, and night. But that does not need to define you. And there are men and women in this room who want to be warriors for Jesus, and you think, well, I can't possibly do that because. But your parents' divorce, or the ugliness of the background you came from, or the sickness with which you're struggling, or the cancer that you're battling against. They do not need to define you. They do not need to determine. They do not need to defeat. Because we have conquered because of Jesus. My singleness does not have to define me. Do you see what I'm saying? And here my heart, I'm not heartless. I'm really, really not. But what I was saying, when I first realized some of this stuff, I thought, God, we can rise above that stuff. We can rise above all these awful things that might have happened over the years, all the difficult job that you might be in, all the financial problems that you might have, all the difficulties you might be having relationally, all the things that might have happened to you or the sickness that you're carrying. I'm sorry. And there's provision and there's prayer and there's everything you need, but it does not need to define you. Only our victory in Jesus is there to define us. This, brothers and sisters, is New Testament, bog-standard Christianity. And I love it. It's the only way to live. It's the only, only way. It's like the um, Afro-American spiritual, we shall overcome. We shall indeed. We shall indeed. So the throne, the lion, and finally the lamb. So how did the lion conquer? How did Christ triumph? There's something incredibly paradoxical coming up here. Because John hears the words in verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Do not weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. And what did he see then? Did he see this great, huge, unstoppably powerful lion gorging itself on its prey with its huge incisors? No. He saw a lamb that had been slain. That's the paradox. That's the irony. That's the mystery. That's the amazingness. Then in verse 6, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. And they sang a new song, and well they might. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and in Greek the word says ethnos, every ethnicity. You triumphed by your blood. So twice in these verses it talks about the slain lamb. And here we have the extraordinary mystery of the Christian faith. Would we not worship the glorious Messiah, the Davidic king, the one who proceeded from King David, the Lion of Judah, came into this world as a lamb? We drove up the M4 yesterday, all the way through, you know, whatever it was, Wiltshire, Summers, or whatever we were. Little lambs, gambling, gambling on the hillsides. So pretty. I keep wanting to stop every few miles. Look, 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 another one. So sweet, incredibly sweet. 
So when you said to a Jew, which of course these people were at that point, when you said to a Jew, a lamb, do they see frisky gambling things dancing through primroses? No, they don't. They see a pool of blood. They saw a pool of blood. And it took them back to the Passover and the power of the blood. And that the angel of death would only pass by where he saw the blood. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. It's the lamb that was slain. Behold, said John, the lamb of God. First time he saw Jesus. He was the lamb of God and he willingly went to be butchered. Butchered in order to triumph. Just extraordinary stuff. Just, just extraordinary. And by being slain, the lamb conquers. And so in verses 9 and 10, which I just so love, they sang a new song, You Are Worthy. You are worthy. You know, when we just read it there, I just thought, I could just have stopped and cried there and then. You're worthy. You are so worthy. Because you were slain. And with your blood, you've purchased men and women for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. I mean, why would you not worship? Why would you not? It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And by that, the Lion of Judah has triumphed. And the Lamb has purchased us for God. Let me finish with this little story I remember the other day. Of a little boy who, with his daddy, had... um, made a model sailing boat. It was quite a good size sailing boat. And they did it with a kit. And it was a sort of making a memory exercise, father and son. And they made this wonderful boat. And they sailed it and they rigged it and everything was in place. And they took it down to the pond in the village, this sort of little lake thing, and they started to sail it backwards and forwards. And it was brilliant. They had a wonderful, wonderful time until a gust of wind suddenly came up unexpectedly and carried the thing miles off across the, I think it was a reservoir, across the reservoir, To the other side, he got caught in the reeds and it was just unreachable. He was distraught. So home they went. A little while later, he was walking through the little village where they lived near the reservoir and in the little, what they chose to call antique shop, you and I call a junk shop, there was was his boat in the window. And the sails were torn and the rigging was all ripped apart and it was demasted and it was a real mess. But it was on sale in the junk shop. So he went in and he asked how much it was, and it was way outside his pay grade. So he said, um, he went home and he started to save. He saved and he saved every week his pocket money. That's a sweet story. And then he went back to the shop with his money, and there was the boat, because nobody else wanted it. And um, he handed over his money, his father took him down, and he picked up the boat and he walked out of the shop. And the shopman and his father heard him talking to this little boat. He said, now, he said, you're twice mine. I made you and I've bought you. I've made you and I've bought you. You're twice mine. Why would we not worship? And the people of God said, amen. Amen.